Hello. Welcome to a bonus mini episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined today by photographer Brian Hamill, who tells us about his encounters with John Lennon, which he's documented in his book, Dream Lovers, John and Yoko in NYC. Brian was at John and Yoko's Madison Square Garden show in 1972 and then spent an afternoon with them a few months later at their Bank Street apartment. Brian then photographed John alone at the Dakota at the start of 1975. Brian's pictures are brilliant and it was fantastic to hear his observations and insights about his time with John. Well, Brian Hamill, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? Oh, how you doing? Uh, we're here to talk about uh, Dream Lovers, John and Yoko in NYC, your recently published collection of photographs of John and of Yoko. If we could just start by maybe sharing with us some of your background in photography. The first pictures that we see of John in the book are at his 1972 Madison Square Garden concert. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to be at that concert to photograph John and Yoko. Okay, I had an assignment for a, a German magazine. My agent, uh, photo agent at the time, uh, his name was Ernest Baum, may he rest in peace. He got me the assignment. Uh, for, I think the magazine was called Bunte. When I got, you know, I had the press pass and everything, and the stage was packed with photographers because in those days you could get right to the lip of the stage. Unlike when you photograph a concert these days, I mean, you're 20 rows back. The press isn't allowed that close. So we were all at the lip of the stage. And uh, in fact, a lot of us have this similar, very similar images, including Bob Grun, a, a very nice guy and good photographer. We were both commenting about how our images look so similar from that from that concert. It was an enjoyable concert for me, although uh, I guess it got bad reviews. Uh, I didn't. I thought it was exciting, and the audience loved John. I think it got bad reviews probably because a lot of people were kind of down on Yoko at the time. I always thought she was, uh, you know took the brunt of a lot of nonsense that uh, she didn't deserve. In any case, uh, the concert was exciting, and um, they had some good opening acts. Roberta Flack, Stevie Wonder, uh, a 50s-style band, Sha Na Na. So it seemed to me that the audience enjoyed it, but uh, I, I guess I, I didn't really re read the reviews right after the concert, but from what I understand, uh, it, it didn't get well reviewed, but it, to me, it was a totally exciting concert. We move on to later that year and the session that you, the kind of time that you spent with John and Yoko, uh, starting out at their apartment in Bank Street in New York City, which I'm sure is well known to quite a few of the listeners, John's kind of time there. Um, tell us a little bit about, first of all, how that session came about and what it was I mean like when you first met John. Yes, that was the first time I met him. I had photographed him on August 30th at the Garden, 1972. And this was um, in October. I had an assignment from Parade magazine to photograph them at home. It's not like I called up a PR person. I, I had a, a little help from my older brother, Pete Hamill, who knew John 
because he had written about him uh, years earlier in 1963 for the Saturday Evening Post. He wrote about the Beatles and they kept in touch and they were sort of friendly. And Pete had been writing columns for the New York Post because uh, he was a columnist and then later the editor of the New York Post and the Daily News. When he was a columnist all his life, he went to Bedford John with his immigration problems. So when I got this assignment, I say, hey, Pete. Do you have to have John's phone number? He said, yeah. I said, could you ask him if I could, you know, do this assignment? They wanted uh, pictures of him at home and, if possible, on the streets in the village. So I called him and he set it up. So I went to 105 Bank Street and I rang the bell and I was expecting a PR person or an assistant to, to answer the door uh, when I walked up the stairs to the the apartment and it was John who opened the door and he put out his hand and said, Hey, Brian, I'm John. <laughs> and the next thing he said, would you like a cuppa? My parents are from Ireland. So I understood what he meant, but I declined. I didn't, I didn't know how much time I would have. Or, you know, th there was no time limitation set beforehand, but I declined the tea and we got ran into taking photographs. What I took with me, uh, was 38 by 10s that I had taken at the previous concert. And I didn't want to, like, hand them right off to him. Uh, I wanted to, you know, wait for the right moment. In any case, and that, that didn't happen until about 45 minutes later. And I, I was taking pictures of them on their bed, uh, and they were talking about the concert. I said, by the way, I wrote an envelope of some of my photographs from the concert. He said, oh, really? Can we see him? I said, well, I brought him for you guys to have. And they were both exceedingly nice. There was no makeup, no hair, no assistance, no PR people. It was just the three of us. So there was no bullshit. It was just the three people in the, in the room. And they started looking through the photographs. Of course, I photographed them looking at my photographs. And the phone rang. And Yoko picked it up. And uh, she was on the phone for about, I don't know, 45 seconds. And she said, hold on, I'll let you speak to John. And whoever they were talking to, it turned out it was a, it was a, a guy who was doing the, the mix of, of, of songs from the concert. And uh, John spoke to him, I don't know, 30 seconds. He said, let me call you back because I was, right now we're looking at some beautiful photographs taken by Brian Hamill. <laughs> so... <laughs> I got a kick out of that. Of course, he did that for my benefit because the guy at the other end of the phone probably didn't know who the hell it was. Uh, but in any case, uh, it was re really nice of him. And uh, they actually did love the photograph. So it was, a, it was a good start with the two of them. And then we photographed up on the roof of, of the apartment and uh, got some nice stuff up there. And none of them, neither one of them said, hey, you got to another 20 minutes or anything like that. So I took my chances and, and John said, uh, hey, do you have any other, any, any places you want to go? I said, how about around the village? He said, yeah, let's go for a walk. So it was very loosey goosey. It was like no pressure at all with the two of them. I felt very relaxed. They were both exceedingly nice and anybody can act nice, but they were really nice to people I met on the street. They never gave the impression that they were more important than the people that they were speaking to. Uh, but they showed their humanity more important than being nice. They showed that they were really, they were real. Uh, and they gave, and he particularly gave very humorous, funny. He's a funny, he was a very funny dude.
And he had, he had a dark side, of course, like all of us do, but it, he didn't really show it until we were walking down Bleecker Street and they were looking at all the windows, window shopping, and uh, we looked in, Yoko rather, looked in a, one of the shops and she spotted something. She said, let's go in here for a second. So she went in first and then John gestured for me to go in next. And I had a couple of Nikons around my neck and there was a guy in a hammock. He had a hat on. And then John followed, and he went to get up when he saw me with the cameras. And then when he spotted John, who was like a quarter of a second behind me, he lay back down in the hammock, and he didn't say anything. He was mute. He was trying to play, as we call my Brooklyn name, he was trying to play Johnny Cool, like to act like, you know, he, he wasn't phased by the presence of uh, John and Yoko, which is just the opposite. Uh, you know, I've been around you know, in the movie business and in journalism around stars my whole life. And it's hard for them sometimes to shake a fan. But this is the flip side of that coin. This is a guy who didn't even want to gesture that he knew who they were or welcome to my shop. Or he, he lay he, in the hammock, he, <laughs> horizontal for the whole time we were there. And finally, Yoko said to him, do you work here? And he said, I own it. Okay, and I could pick up the vibe, but John didn't like it. He stayed by the door, his arms were folded. I couldn't get a good three shot of him in the hammock, Yoko looking at sweaters on the opposite side of the room, and John at the door. And then a guy from the back of the store behind the wall came, and he was very friendly. Acknowledged all and said hello and said to Yoko, can I help you? And then she ended up picking out a sweater. Uh, and when we exited the store, John said to me, asshole. He didn't say it. I don't think he said it loud. He said it like to me for my benefit. And I don't know if Yoko even heard it because I didn't want to chime in and, you know, make stretch out the, the whole point, you know. Uh, but he let it go. He didn't he didn't, as we say in Brooklyn, he didn't run it in the hole. He, he kept it. He just said that one thing to me. Mm -hmm. Now, Yoko bought a sweater and John carried the bag the whole remainder of the time. He said, why don't we walk over to the Bank Street Pier? That's one of our favorite spots. So we went over to the, uh, the Bank Street Pier, which in those days was very desolate. You know, it's not like how it is now. Everything's built up down in the downtown waterfront. But we went there and it was it was getting late in the afternoon. The light was starting to get prettier. And uh, the back cover of the book is one of my fond pictures of the two of them together. But I did make a, a, a standing look and John said to me, wow, this river is magical. And uh, I wondered in my brain if it, if, it, if it reminded him of Liverpool, you know, <laughs> the mercy or something. So anyway, as, but he was very, very nice. They were both very, he, by the way, he held hands with it the whole time. They were like sidekick and they, they liked each other's company a lot. Mm -hmm. And he was very respectful of her, very while you were walking around with him, was he approached by many people? Did he speak to many people or did people just leave him and Yoko alone? There was a cluster of people that stopped him and spoke to him, but it wasn't like Beatlemania. It wasn't like that surrounded. New York is not like that, particularly in the village. Uh, it's it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of celebrities live down there. People see celebrities on the streets all the time. Although, this is one of the biggest celebrities in the world. I mean, uh, but he was very cool about it. He didn't ignore anybody. 
but uh, it wasn't. He didn't get mobbed. You know, it would be like maybe one couple, another couple would would drift in to hear the conversation. But it never got beyond five or six people listening to the two of them. Now, like I said, they, they both showed humanity, which is different than niceness. You know, it's uh, whatever they said uh, was meaningful. And on John's part, very funny. Uh, so then the second part of the book is uh, set three years later in February of 1975. And once again, you're asked to go and photograph John. Uh, this time, John's on his own. And it's in the... Dakota building, which obviously is, had been his home for a, a short time already by that point and is somewhere that's always going to be associated with John and Yoko. Let's have a chat about that. So first of all, where did that assignment come from? So when I, same thing, I had a, a check with the doorman downstairs and they said, hold on, they got the clearance. And <clears throat> again, I thought, okay, I'll, for this time, because it's Rolling Stone, it'll probably be a PR person there. But I don't know why I thought that. I don't know why I pre-thought that. Uh, anyway, I took the elevator to the seventh floor. John opened the door himself, put out his hand. He said, hey, Brian, how you been? And I said, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? He said, everything's cool. I had a kind of a weird year, but everything's cool now. And uh, I re- immediately remembered my old man telling me once, don't gossip. People gossip with you will gossip of you. I didn't go there. You know, I didn't like, what was your weird year like? You know, it was all over the tabloids anyway. In any case, he was cool. And he said, the first thing he said after that was, um, it's just going to be you and I because Yoko's busy in her office downstairs working on stuff. So I said, great. So uh, then he started bringing me through this uh, apartment. And it was huge. Because, you know, I've been in a lot of apartments in New York, including the one I grew up in, in working class Brooklyn, which was tiny. There were seven kids in my family. But this was this is the Dakota and a lot of celebrity people live in rich people live in the Dakota. But he he never gave off an air of, you know, hey, I'm, I'm the king of the world. None of that. None of that nonsense with John Lennon. I saw a bed through one of the rooms. I said, John, can I photograph you on the bed like I did down um, on Bank Street? He said, sure, let me let me get a couple of things. And he, he pulled a couple of posters out. One of them was a Jurgen Vollmer photograph. And he asked me if I knew Jurgen Vollmer. I said, no, I didn't. Of course, I wanted to know who he was. And he started telling me, oh, he, he photographed us a lot when we were in Hamburg. And then he, uh, he had another framed uh, photo, photograph up on his wall next to his jukebox. And the, the other poster he put on the bed was, uh, it had a Salvador Dali image of him photographed in the graphic of the poster. Uh, I never really perused the, the, uh, the framed images because they were just props for me to shoot John on the bed. And then we segued from that room to the room that had their jukebox. And uh, he looked over his shoulder, his right shoulder, and said to me, uh, you have any requests? I said, yeah, you have any Marvin Gaye? He said, I certainly do. Yes, I do. I love Marvin Gaye. And uh, he put on what's going on. And I stood back a little so I could get a vertical of him. It was a, a, a pair of 
neon lips above the jukebox, you know, and that photograph to the left of the jukebox is the Jurgen Volma photograph. And he was singing along with the lyric. He seemed to know all the lyrics to this, and that impressed me, you know, because I was a major Marvin Gaye fan. And I didn't know the lyrics, but John did, and he was singing along with him, you know, it was, it was very cool. And when the song finished, I walked up to him and I said, you know, this is the most inventive fucking album of the 70s. And then I caught myself, what the fuck did I just say to John Lennon? Because the guy had about four or five good albums out in the 70s himself, he and Yoko. So I was like uh, trying to calm myself after saying that. And after by the at eight second laps, it seemed like an hour and a half. John Lennon said, you're right. It's a great fucking album. And I felt so relieved. And then he, he started naming, you know, because when I asked for Marvin Gaye, then he said, you know, I have Smokey, I have Wilson Pickett, I have, uh, you know, do you, want, do you have any requests? And I said, put something on that you like. He said, well, I like them all. I wouldn't be in here. <laughs> he put on Shout by the Isley Brothers. And, uh, Boy, did that relax me. I was still trying to I was still trying to calm myself down from my fuck up. That did calm me down. I actually started dancing in place to the music and he looked over his left shoulder. I grabbed another image of him looking at me dancing and uh so it was it was a cool moment. And uh we walked through another room, there was an, an Asian woman, uh she was ironing, and then he said to me, uh I'm gonna sit this. Let's sit down at this table for a second. I gotta, I, I gotta write a couple of lyrics down. So he sat down, and I stood up because I figured, oh, he's gonna write some lyrics. Let me grab a few images of that. So I grabbed one or two. With that, uh, my shutter was kind of noisy because it was quiet in the kitchen. Uh, the only other person in the apartment was the Asian uh, housekeeper in the adjoining room. And then he wrote down a few lyrics and he looked, you know, he was like lost in thought, wrote down a few more lyrics and I cooled out uh, shooting. I just figured I'd give him a moment because I know about writers. I come from a family of writers and they need their solitude. And then I don't know where he says, I'm fucking hungry. Are you hungry? And I go, yeah, I could eat because, you know, <laughs> I could always eat. And, uh, he said, how about a toasty? I said, a toasty? I didn't know what a toasty was. He said, oh, you guys, I said, a toasty? He goes, oh, you guys call it a, a grilled crisp cheese or something. I said, oh, a grilled cheese. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I could go for a grilled cheese. So I, being the incorrect 70s, this is 75, I assumed he was going to ask the uh, the Asian woman to come and hook up the food. And uh, he proceeded to take cheese out of the refrigerator. There was a butter dish already on the counter. He took a big black frying pan out of the cabinet. He hooked up two great grilled cheese sandwiches. He added some chips to them. We sat down at that little table where he had been writing the lyrics. And he must have really been hungry because he ate faster than any working class guy I ever grew up with. People could glom food down quickly when you when you come from big families, but he he wolfed it down. It was it was enjoyable to sit opposite a guy who was so important, who seemed so regular. Mm -hmm. You know, he seemed like a like a regular guy from our neighborhood. 
And he seemed just like just like one of the guys. Uh, and then I said to him, uh, just to break the ice a little, because it was a big moment of silence, sounds we were both eating. I said, whatever happened to your uh, Paisley painted Rolls Royce? He said, I gave it to that asshole, Alan Klein. And then I said afterward, I said, because uh, he didn't, again, there's no pressure for time or anything. He said, I said, uh, how's the roof up here? Because I did the roof on Bank Street. He said, oh. I said, how are the graphics? He said, great fucking graphics. And then we went up to the roof. And he put on this oversized, like, French beret kind of thing. And uh, I had, before I went into the apartment, uh, when he opened the door of the apartment uh, on the seventh floor of the Dakota, I stuffed my uh, my cap, which, you know, the snap-open cap in my pocket. So we went out on the roof. It was windy, but it wasn't, you know, for February, it wasn't really that cold. It was kind of a mild day, but windy. And uh, he put his hat on, and uh, he had, like, a velvet uh, jacket with an Elvis pin on the left lapel, which was great because uh, great graphic. I mean, two icons together in the same image. So I shot a lot of pictures of him uh, on the roof. And as he was watching me put my cap on, I sort of beat him where I thought I was doing, was beating him to the punch because I thought he was going to make a statement, but he didn't. I said, oh, I'm sorry to cop your style, you know, with the snap open cap. And he, he just smiled a thin smile. He didn't say anything. And then we proceeded to shoot. And I kept telling him, John, it's very windy. Do you want to look at a mirror or something? Uh, we didn't, he didn't have a mirror with him. And no, 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 just do your thing. I don't care. And that's very unlike, you know, because I made a chunk of my career working on doing stills on movies. And uh, movie people, you know, if one hair gets out of place, so the wrecking team runs in to fix it. So, uh, in any case, he was he was just a regular guy, a nice guy too, and he was very complimentary about my older brother too. Uh, he said, oh, "Pete's been doing all these solids for me, and you know, with the columns." And I so appreciate that. And we go back a long way. He started telling me, you know, so it was it was nice. Mm-hmm. And then when I felt like I I was like finished up, I I took my own cues and I felt like I had enough. And I said, I think I'm cool, John. Are you? And he said, yeah, as long as you got enough. And then we went back downstairs and I was putting my gear away. And he walked me to the door and he put his right hand on my back. And he pointed to my cap and he said, don't worry about copying my style. I copped it from Dylan. (laughs) How nice is that? Mm. Did he seem very different? from 72 did you was he exactly the same or was there any kind of change in him from the, the three years previously the, the last time that you met him um i i didn't see any real discernible change in his character but he seemed more centered to me it seemed like you know the Beatles thing was now like three years behind him and he seemed i think and maybe it was just my imagination but i thought he seemed more liberated and uh more down to earth and it was after that year of turmoil that, you know, he went through and getting back with Yoko. So I guess if they were cool, he was cool. You know, he just a, a stand up guy both times. So the kind of guy you want to want to be friends with, whether he was a celebrity or not. Mm. So and not to put down the other guys, I think they were all 
great guys. I, I, I met George twice, too, and he was a very, very nice cat. I never met uh, Paul or Ringo, but uh, George is a very nice cat. So I imagine they were all nice, and uh, they're all talented. I mean, listen, it's the Beatles. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us a little bit about where you met George and what that was like? First time I met George was again in the village, and he was meeting a friend of mine, Al Ranowitz, uh, at Dave's Pot Belly. It was a coffee joint. And uh, he said, Why don't you meet me? Because I lived then in the village. I, I lived a couple of blocks away from it, and I had known it well. But he didn't tell me who he was with or to bring my camera or anything. So I, I showed up to meet what I thought was meeting Al. And uh, he was there with George Harrison. So I met him briefly there just to have a coffee and then they were going to walk around and uh, do something together. And he was, couldn't have been nicer. He was very spiritual. And then uh, about a year or two later, I was in LA and I went to a party at uh, a blues singer uh, named Mae Mercer. She was an actress, blues singer. It was, she had a party at her house. She had a house in Hollywood Hills and he was there. And uh, I was getting some stuff from the food table and he came over and he was getting food and he looked up at me and I didn't say anything to him. I didn't want to be like Hound George Harrison time because, you know, working on movies, you're, you know, you know, you see celebrities all the time. So, but he looked at me and said, have I met you? And I said, yeah, we met with the Al at Dave's Park Belly. That's right. Yeah. And uh, he was totally nice. And another actor I knew <laughs> came up to the table and he started bending George's ear. I, I won't name him, but he started reciting his goddamn resume to George. And that uh, was kind of embarrassing. You know, oh, you didn't see this movie. You didn't see that movie. And George goes, no, no, I didn't. And then finally, the guy wouldn't leave him alone. And he, he said to George, gee, do you, do you go to movies? And uh, so George came back there and he said, you know something? I'm going over there. And he pointed to the other side of the room. You stay here. <laughs> and, and walked over. And he said goodbye, Brian, to me. And he walked over. And the actor said to me, did, did I just hear correctly? Did he say that to me? I said, yeah, you wouldn't shut the fuck up. Why were you talking so much? And updating your resume. And what? That's, that's uncool. Uh, so I won't tell you his name because, you know, that's showbiz gossip and the guy's long gone. So, okay. But, okay. Did you ever see John or Yoko again after that day in 75? I saw Yoko on the streets of the village several times and one time with her son, but I didn't want to stop them and uh, do that, that routine. You know, I didn't want to say, Hey, uh, Yoko, Hey, you know, remember me? I didn't, I didn't do that. So, I never, I never spoke to her again, but I've seen her like, you know, lots of times because her son lives in the village. Brian, it's been really, really interesting hearing your stories about these these two fascinating days that you spent with John and Yoko. Okay, I, I enjoyed it, Joe. Thanks a million.